morning, gentlemen. Great to see you on this fine morning. Uh, we, uh, we at Second are really excited about our missions conference this week. We have some guests here uh, from around the world. We're just so glad that they're here with us. And for those of you from other churches, which is most of you, uh, we would invite you to take part in any part, any part of our weekend conference that you'd like to take part of. It would be a pleasure to have you. Um, and this morning we look at a text that really takes us into the world in a very dynamic, very dramatic way. And sometimes we, we go into parts of the world even against our own, uh, our own desires. And that was the case with the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul, I think you can see from his epistles, he, he was a man who generally planned things very well. Uh, he, had a, he was a visionary by nature, and he was also a strategist and, and not a bad tactician either. Uh, and sometimes when you're, you're a man who plans very carefully and you have a big, bold vision, it's very difficult for you to take interruptions in those plans. You don't really like anybody tinkering with those plans, including God. Uh, and yet the fact is God is going to tinker with your plans. Things are not going to work out the way you thought they were going to work out. Now, that's not an argument against planning. Uh, Paul continued to plan even when he faced some frustrations like we're going to see this morning. But what he learned was we do the best we can to plan, and then we submit to God's plan. And we continue to plan, but we continue to submit all on the way. You'll see this in the, in the apostle's life, and you'll see how fruitful it turns out for him because here's another piece of good news. God's plan is better than your plan. And so we're going to see that really come into living color with the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. This man who wanted to reach the world for Christ, he just didn't know how much he really wanted to reach the world for Christ until God showed him. Let's look at chapter 16. And, of course, we've, what's happened is uh, <clears throat> Paul and uh, all the other apostles have gone to Jerusalem to settle this huge theological dispute over whether you needed to have the marks of Judaism as well as receive Jesus Christ for salvation. And the council in Jerusalem ruled clearly, no, you don't have to have the mark of circumcision. You do not have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And then Paul, what did Paul with his new partner Silas do? They went back to the churches they had evangelized to teach them, to announce this doctrine that was determined from the scriptures by the Jerusalem council. And to strengthen the churches there, we must always do that. When you evangelize, you continue to disciple and strengthen. You plant a church, but then you must strengthen it. And that's what the apostle Paul and Silas were doing. And then after they had strengthened the churches, they had evangelized. They were saying, okay, let's go to new territory. The most natural thing to do is just go to the neighboring province. Just like if you start to evangelize Tennessee, then go to Mississippi, you might go to Arkansas, and then you go out from there. That's, that's what Paul was thinking. That's good thinking. It's good planning. And let's see what the Lord does. Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, 
Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on, uh, on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. 
And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. Folks, uh, I want us to see uh, a few things, three main things in this text today. The first one is this, that the Lord leads us to the lost. You see this in the first five verses. The Lord leads us to the lost. If you'll engage His mission, He will lead you to the lost. If you'll pray that He'll use you, He'll lead you to the lost. If you'll ask that He'll make you an agent of the Great Commission, He'll lead you to the lost. That's, his, that's what He's about. We get into His business. We get into the Father's business. The Father's going to put us into His business. Now, notice in the first two verses that our plans are sometimes frustrated. Paul was already planning to get to the lost. Well, God had some other lost for him. And sometimes our plans for evangelism, as aggressive as they may be, as seemingly wise as they may be, as well thought out with as many counselors as they may be, uh, they may be frustrated. And you see here it happened even with the Apostle Paul himself. Look at this work of God. Uh, what you find here, of course, is that if you if you turn the page and look at your map, you can see that Paul was in the area of Galatia. You see there on your map, on the bottom of page 2118, you see that he was in Galatia with Derby and Lystra and Iconium, and then he got all the way over into Antioch and Pisidia. Now, it only made sense, didn't it, that he would go there through Phrygia and into Asia. But we are told that uh, he went through the region of Phrygia and Asia, and he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I have no idea what that means, except that I've had moments myself when I thought I had a wonderful evangelistic opportunity, and I just felt the Holy Spirit just shut down the entire opportunity. I have no, no idea what was going on. Uh, this is more dramatic than that here with the Apostle Paul. We don't know exactly what that is, but the Holy Spirit forbade him. Now, his next instinct was, okay, uh, I'm in Phrygian Galatia. I'm not able for some reason by the Holy Spirit to speak in Asia. It only makes sense then. I'll go to another neighboring province uh, up to Bithynia. Now, Bithynia actually was not even a Roman province, but it was an, a region. And so he plans to go to Bithynia. But look what the text says in verse 7. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, I don't know why in the world the Spirit of Jesus uh, did not allow them. I don't know what that means. Could it mean that, as we know later, the Apostle Peter went into that area because Peter mentioned some of those areas in his letter, so Peter was up in that territory? Was it because Paul got word that you know, his buddy Peter was going to go up and handle that area. I, I don't know what it was, but the Spirit of Jesus blocked them. Now, these are miles and miles on foot. You're on a mission. You're on a missions trip. You've been walking hundreds of miles, and you're not talking to anybody about Jesus, and you're wondering, why in the world did I leave Antioch in the first place? It's not making any sense to me. 
and your partners will begin to look at you like you're a little half crazy, taking them on this wild journey uh, through the hills of Turkey and not talking to anybody about Jesus. So what does he do? Keep looking at your map. Look at that red line there. He just keeps walking along the border between Asia and Bithynia because he couldn't get into either one of them by the Spirit of God. God was doing this. I don't understand it. And he didn't understand it. And he's walking. He just keeps going west. And he doesn't, he's not having any evangelistic success at all. Goes for hundreds of miles. And comes all the way. Look at Troas. Look how far away that is. You ever walked that lately? From Antioch and Pisidia to Troas? Folks, that's a hike. We're talking about months of travel with, with no remarkable encounter for the sake of Jesus Christ. Apparently no conversions. Goes all the way finally to Troas. And I'm sure he hits the end of that landmass, he gets all the way to the other end of Asia and says, okay, what now? Well, it appears that in Troas, he meets somebody. His name is Luke. You'll notice in the, in the next verse uh, that, or I read, I'm sorry, in verse 10, the word we. This is the beginning of one of those famous we sections. Here it begins that Luke talks about us guys and not just those guys. So Luke appears to have been in Troas. Luke was a physician. I imagine that after all that, Paul probably needed a psychiatrist and a physician uh, after that, that journey. He goes, apparently, he, he runs into Luke. Maybe he'd gone to him for some help. I don't know. But he leads Luke to Christ. And Luke becomes a very valued assistant to him. Now, we're going to see something else, of course, happens. But first of all, notice that uh, the, the best laid plans of apostles as well as Christians to evangelize your workplace, this city, plant churches. You may have all kinds of ideas. You get started into the work and you're going to be very frustrated. God's going to teach you a lesson right from the beginning. This is not your mission. It is my mission. I'm not your servant. You're my servant. We're going to do things my way. Now, it's your job to get on the move. It's easier to steer a moving car than a parked car. So you get the thing on the road, start walking, start moving in the ministry, but then expect God to show you a path after you get out there. And those of you even on short-term missions trips, you know how it goes. Ron Sadlow has been teaching us here for 20 years on this. When you go out there, you should have plans. You should have things you think you're going to do. Be ready to change every single one of your plans when you hit the field. And you know what? It's just a good reminder that in your workplace, if you're going to be serious about ministering to people, be ready to change every one of your plans. Because here in 8 and 9, you see, his plans actually are always fruitful. God does have a plan to use you. And God's ideas are different from our ideas. You thought, Paul, that what we should do is go from one province to the next. And let's be sure and take care of home business first. Let's be sure and reach our nation first for Jesus. And let's just be sure we cover every state. Ever been to Spokane? Spokane needs churches, folks, big time. The Northwest, if you've been there, is bereft largely of any, uh, not of any, but of many significant evangelical churches. Or you might say, well, let's all go to Spokane. Let's get the job done. India is still sitting over there with a billion people who need to know Jesus. And Paul uh, has learned something. God will leapfrog over something that looks very important to you. 
because he's going to use other people in his game plan. He's got other people on the earth who also want to meet, uh, reach people for Jesus, but he's got a special plan for you through his providence. So you have to be prepared to leapfrog into all of the places that sometimes don't seem to make a whole lot of sense to you. Paul was by nature. He, he, was, he was from the landmass that he was on now. He was thinking it would seem to me to make sense for me to reach my own people, the people I'm most closely associated with. God had other plans. Now, if you read Stott's commentary, you find that he mentioned several people to whom this happened. You know, the great David Livingston. We all know the great apostle of Africa. He had planned to go to China first. <laughs> God changed his plans. And, you, of course, you know the great William Carey, the apostle to uh, the modern-day apostle 200 years ago uh, to India. Well, he planned to go to Polynesia in the, in the Pacific. And Stott also mentions Adoniram Judson that, uh, uh, that Dan Burns, our missions pastor, mentioned on Sunday. Uh, it was 200 years ago on Sunday that we... Uh, Americans had our first foreign missionary leave here uh, 200 years ago this week. And he himself had planned to go to India, not Burma. God changed his plans. So with some of our most well-known missionaries, they've all had their plans changed by God. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and look how God changed their plans in verse 8. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia, not to Macedonia, but to Macedonia and help us. Paul was given a vision by God. Wow. And now you may say, Well, that's an interesting way to do it through dreams. Paul's been trying to evangelize for months, and now God's going to give him a dream. Yeah? If God chooses to do it that way, that's the way he does it. And then look in verse 10, see. We, we must be always faithful. There you go, Marines. Simplify. Always faithful. We must be always faithful. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, folks, immediately, says Luke, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding, that is inferring, putting the pieces together, drawing the best conclusion we could, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now this was very dramatic because they were at the Aegean Sea and they were going from what we would today call Asia to Europe. This is the European invasion right here by vision. And sometimes we need something rather dramatic to get us out of the ordinary, out of our own humanly devised plans into something that God's going to do to change the world. And indeed he did through this. So they're going over and they're going to cross the Aegean into European territory. This was Greece. This was another culture, uh, another uh, ethnic group to, to say. It, it was a, another nationality in some sense, although they're all, it's all the Roman Empire. But it's, a, it's another subculture to be sure. It's another religious environment. We're going to see when we get over there after we cross the Aegean this morning that there, there really are very few Jewish people. And if you notice Paul's strategy so far, he goes from synagogue to synagogue. Well, there is no synagogue in this European city. It's a significant city. It has a lot of retired military people in it. Some people say that Luke was originally from Philippi because he compliments the city beyond what most people would have. You know how you talk about your own city and how wonderful it is. Well, you know, you can look at the description here that 
uh, Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's like saying Brownsville was a leading city of the county of so-and-so, you know. Uh, so uh, we don't know uh, if Luke was there originally. We know he w- appeared to be in Troas for sure when Paul met him. But uh, this is a very different place, and this is where God has taken him. You know, when, uh, when the Massachusetts colony was first founded in the 17th century, they developed a motto. You know what that motto was? It was a motto of an Indian calling over to the British, come over and help us. The Massachusetts colony, by the Christians who first landed there, they saw it as a mission. They went there to establish a church, remember. Now, this was only 15% of the population. The other 85 were there to trade and make money. But the 15%, and it was only 15% who were evangelical in the Massachusetts colony, they saw this as their grand mission, to go over to a new land and to reach those people there. And that was the state motto for years in Massachusetts, come over and help us, the Macedonian call. And indeed, that ought to be the call for all of us. It's interesting, you go in the next century, the 18th century, with the famous Jonathan Edwards, the, the greatest theologian this country ever produced. And of course, we know of Jonathan Edwards as the eventually the president of Princeton University. He was a very, he was a genius. And uh, he died shortly after becoming the president of Princeton. But before he was the president of Princeton, we forget. Of course, we all know he was also the pastor of Northampton uh, Church, Congregational Church. But when he got kicked out of that church, Edwards got kicked out of his church. I remember Ronnie Stevens saying one time, look, if Edwards got kicked out of his church by an overwhelming majority, how long do you think you're going to last? So Edwards, the great Jonathan Edwards got kicked out of his church because of a theological controversy. And you know where he went after that? He went to Stockbridge to minister to the Indians, and those Indians had just scalped, slaughtered uh, scores of colonists just outside that area. And he went straight to that place with his family of multiple children and his wife and ministered there and established a school and a church among the Indians. You know, when you follow Jesus Christ, you, you break through your ethnic biases you break through your cultural boundaries and you begin to break into the mind and the heart of the living God who made them all and loves them all and wants them all to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You begin to move into that and he will take you all kinds of places. You may end up in some highfalutin institution. You may have a great reputation, but that's not what you're looking for. You're just simply looking to serve and to expand the kingdom of God. And anyone who's really had their heart open to God will find. He'll change your plans and he'll put you where he wants you and he'll make you fruitful there. He'll use you there as he did Jonathan Edwards. Well, let's move on. When we get to verses 11, and this is not 11 through 49, that's a misprint, it should be 11 through 34. The Lord uses us to save the lost. The Lord uses us to save the lost. The Lord is not just moving us around like chess pieces to waste our time. Now, sometimes we feel like we're wasting our time. But if we're engaged in His kingdom, He's going to take us to places where we can be fruitful. You know, sometimes I'll I'll have uh, a man say to me, you know, I'd really love to be useful to somebody here in the church. What can I do? And uh, I say, well, you know, very few men are able to teach men who are older than they are. Uh, a few more men can teach their peers. Most of the time, you know, we just don't have much influence with our peers. But almost every man will have influence if he'll just go down. If he'll just go down. 
if you just just keep going down in age group until you find that you can help somebody. And normally, if you'll go keep going down, you'll find somebody who will want to use you. Now, you may end up in the nursery. But let me tell you something. The nursery will be delighted to have you. And Sam Barry will tell you all about that and some other people here. He's been in there for years. Now, it's not because Sam can't influence other people. It's because Sam has a heart to go where the Lord has led him. You just keep going down, and you're going to find somebody that you can serve and somebody that you can influence and somebody that you can lead to Christ. The problem with a lot of men is they've already decided who they want their audience to be, some, some audience that's befitting their dignity. And I, I don't think Paul was thinking that way. Paul had other thoughts. But Paul had something in his mind about where he thought he would be effective. God's going to take him to an interesting place, and he's going to use him. Now, first of all, notice in verses 11 through 15 this wonderful story of Lydia we find that the Lord uses us to to save those who are seeking. Those who are seeking. Here's a woman who actually worshiped God in some way. She was not a Jew, but she was a what we call a God-fearer. And she was truly seeking God to some degree. It's an amazing thing. You'll find that when he goes into the city, all he knows to do is wait till the Sabbath day. Since there's no synagogue in this city... uh, And you had to have 10 men, Jewish men, to have a synagogue. So there are not 10 Jewish men in this city. So Paul knows on the Sabbath day, you want to find the Jewish people, go to the river. Because you can't even have a prayer meeting without the river. You've got to have water to to wash and have special ritual ceremonies and so on. Uh, And so Paul goes to the river, and now, lo and behold, there you go. He, He meets some Jewish people. Not enough to have a synagogue, not enough men, but there's some women there. And one of them is named Lydia. Now, this woman is some chick. Uh, she sells purple goods, which were well known in that time, from Thyatira. They were very expensive. Her name is Lydia. That region was in ancient times called Lydia, the Lydian area. So she, she may have just have been that Lydian woman. She may have been the Lydian sales agent for the company in Thyatira to sell their purple goods there. But she was some sharp salesman. We're going to see her social skills in just a minute. But when they came together, there was a woman there, it says, uh, in verse uh, 15 uh, or so. And she, uh, uh, a woman there, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And then look what God does. First of all, he opens their hearts. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Folks, you can preach the best sermon you ever preached in your life. You can be as passionate as you want to be. You can be as loving as you want to be. If God doesn't open their heart, nothing's going to happen salvifically. It really doesn't ultimately depend upon the the eloquence of the preacher, the rational argument that he's making. Now, of course, uh, it'd be nice if we could all be eloquent and all be rational. Uh, And that's helpful. And it's kind to your hearer. So we'll do the best we can. But that's not what converts people. God converts people. I mean, have, some of you who, have, who are in the teaching ministry, have you, have you ever taught a group and someone came up to you later and you realize they're, they're being saved and then they quoted something you said that convicted their heart and you know before God you never said that? You ever had that happen? I have. I've, I may as well be Balaam's ass 
I, it doesn't, in one sense, it didn't matter what I said. God somehow took something and spoke to her heart. It was almost as though what I, whatever I was saying was just a sacrament. It, it, it wasn't the words themselves. It was just God ministering in the event of being in His presence and studying His Word. And God spoke to that person's heart and actually converted them through something she thought I said and I didn't really say it. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, we have to remember we must do the best we can to teach, the best we can to preach, the best we can to evangelize. But the moment you begin depending upon your presentation, you are badly missing the whole point. God's going to take you where He wants to take you, and when He gets you there, He'll use you, but not quite in the way you thought. It's not as though you and God are equal partners and that He's got to have you just as much as you've got to have Him. No, sir, buddy. He is going to do His thing, and He sometimes will make you look like an idiot, but He'll still reach His people. And he'll work around you or through you or under you or over you. But he will use you. That's the glory of it. But he'll use you in ways that you might not have been expecting and in ways that you don't really fully understand. Just go. Just commit yourself. Just offer yourself as a living sacrifice and trust him to do some miraculous work. That's what he did with this woman. And he's got to open their hearts. He opened your heart. You want to know how you became a believer? I'll tell you ultimately one way God opened your heart to believe a message and it might not even been the message that idiot preacher was giving it may have been a message directly to your heart from God now secondly notice what happens after they get converted he opens their homes you want to know how to make a real friend I mean a lifelong friend lead him to Christ (laughs) you have some people you led to Christ they're your friend And when you lead them to Christ and their heart is open, their homes are going to be open. And gentlemen, it's the same with us. When your heart is open to the Lord, then you end up having friends. And you open your home and your life. That's just a natural instinct. Now, this woman obviously was an extrovert. She was a salesperson. She had great social skills. I don't want to make too much of this. But you can see how when she's converted, it's not just a little personal relationship between her and Jesus. No, it's a relationship between her and Jesus and His entire kingdom. And she opens her heart to His entire kingdom. So you can't say that your heart belongs to Jesus if your heart doesn't belong to the world. And if your home doesn't belong to the world. And if we freeze out certain people from our home because we just want our little private space where even Jesus can't get in, you haven't given your heart to Him. Because when you give your heart to Him, you give your home to Him. She was baptized and she wanted Paul in her home. She wanted Paul in her life. She didn't just want to be a convert. She wanted to be a disciple. And anyone who does get converted wants to be a disciple. And they want that disciple in their life. And they have a hunger and a thirst for spiritual things. There are many, many people who have walked the Nile. They've been dunked. They've done this. They've done that. They've gone on missions trips. They give to the church. But they haven't really been converted. Because a convert wants to be a disciple, wants to follow with Jesus and wants to learn more and more of his word. Now, notice secondly, if we leave Lydia for the moment, in verses 16 through 18, he not only reaches those who are seeking, but he reaches those who are enslaved, enslaved, possessed. Here is a slave girl 
who is worse than, uh, she's, her condition is worse than be, being merely in human slavery. She is in spiritual slavery. She is possessed by demonic powers, demons themselves. And we've seen that Jesus in his ministry saw this over and over again. And if you've been studying with us in Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings here, you can see how when, in Jesus' first teaching encounters, he goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and what does he face? Demons right away. Why does he have to face the demons? Because Jesus had already announced a kingdom, a regime change. Whose regime? The demons' regime. And Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And the demons shudder. So they can't help but come out and oppose him. And they do from every direction. And Jesus takes absolute lordship over all those demonic powers. Now he sends his apostles into this alien, demonic part of the world. At that time, demonic. And you'll see the same thing happening. The demons come out. Now, first of all, the demons come out in strange ways. And Paul didn't initially, didn't initially confront this girl. I'm not sure exactly why. I, I've had a similar experience, so I can, I can, I can guess. But uh, she followed us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It looks like he's got a living advertisement there. It looks like he's got a walking uh, audiovisual billboard traveling around with him. Why did, he, why did he stop it? Why was he irritated? She was using language that was common to pagans. The Most High God, that just means among all the gods, maybe this is the chief one among all the other gods. That would be the language of Most High God. That was typical Gentile language. You'll find it among the Gentiles in the Old Testament. You'll find it among the, the demon-possessed Gentiles in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Gadarene demoniac uses this word, Most High God. So Paul was being placarded as a minister of one of the gods, and this would be the chief god. The word salvation was also used in certain ways in pagan religion. And so this girl was badly confusing things. The other thing she was doing is she was the advertisement. So, okay, you want to become like what Paul is talking about? Then you'll look like this girl who's possessed with a demon. So it was a completely wrong advertisement. So Paul is definitely irritated. And I have had that experience when I was doing some mass evangelism. I remember a person walking along the street with me who was loudly proclaiming something. And I asked my, my cohorts to please quieten him down and take him off. Now, I didn't cast out a demon. I'm a Presbyterian. Uh, so we just got rid of the boy. Um, but look what Paul does. Look what Paul does. He converts the girl. He doesn't get rid of her. He exercises her of her demon. And he cleanses her. This girl who had been completely enslaved. And there were many slaves in this part of the world in a different sort of slavery than we've known in the 19th century here. But she had been enslaved probably all of her life. And she was possessed by a demon. And Paul's ministry set her free. And gentlemen, uh, our ministry ought to be to set people free from everything that holds them back, everything that enslaves them, everything that commits injustices against them. And those of you who are working in this city especially in the under-resourced neighborhoods with people who don't have economic opportunities because there has been generations of injustice going on. May the Lord continue to bless you and use you in all those efforts because that's gospel ministry to set people free in every aspect of their lives. And this girl just got the gospel freedom. And that demon flew out of her at the command of the Lord Jesus Christ through His servant, the Apostle Paul. And Jesus has come to save 
those that are the least, those that are the lonely, those that appear to be the most wicked, those that are demon-possessed. He came to save them. That's our crowd. And we have to go after them as well as the sharp sales lady, the Lydian seller of Thyatira and Purple Goods. She's fun to evangelize. Her heart was seeking, and the Lord was immediately working in her. She wanted more Bible study. She's like us, for heaven's sakes. And then you have this slave girl who's very much not like us. And the gospel was equally for her, and God had a message for Paul. I've sent you to this city to reach that woman and to reach that girl, both. Now, look thirdly. He also sends us to reach those who are unsuspecting. Unsuspecting. Why do I say that? Well, because we're going to talk about this jailer. This jailer was probably a retired military man. Many of the real retired military men, in fact, Philippi had a lot of retired military. And a lot of the retired military would go into government service, you know, uh, after their retirement from military service. They had certain skills they developed in the military. So, hey, jailer, that'll fit. You know, you're a sergeant in the, in the Roman army, and now you can, you, you can be a, a jailer. So that's probably what was happening. He was just doing his job. He was just an ordinary, ordinary guy, believed in law and order, just wanted everybody to live a decent life, leave him alone, things were going fine. He wasn't suspecting to have what we'd call a deep religious experience in his jailkeeping that night. Unsuspecting. Now look how this all unfolds. How are you going to reach a guy who seems to have no interest in religion? He's going about his business. He's a tough military guy. Thinks he's pretty well, you know, got things together, self-sufficient. You know, he's fought the enemy and killed a few and survived. He's a tough, tough bird. How are you going to reach a guy like that who seems to have no interest in religion? Well, let's look how Paul reaches him. And once again, you're going to see this is not Paul's plan. This is contrary to Paul's plan. This is how God's going to do it if you want to reach people. First of all, he does it through opposition, verses 19 through 21. Now, guys, this is hard to explain except just to say we live in a wicked world. Paul had done this this girl a, a major favor. But look what happens. When her owners saw that their hope of gain, economic gain, was gone. They grab Paul by his cloak and they drag him into the marketplace before the officials there. And when they brought him out, they started making claims against him that were not the real issue at all. These were very clever accusers. They didn't tell the truth. They told parts of truths took it out of context, distorted it, and made the whole thing a lie. They didn't go to the marketplace and say, everybody, could I have your attention? We were making a good living from this fortune-telling girl. Uh, It was done by demons who had enslaved her life. Didn't bother us much. But this guy came along, a real do-gooder, and he set the demon free, and now we can't make any money anymore. That's not what they said. That's what the truth was. But They certainly didn't say it. Here's what they said. First of all, they made an ethnic reference. This guy's a Jew. Okay, great. So first thing we're going to do, let's stir up some racism in this crowd. Let's get ethnic biases really going for us here. Let's let's identify, first of all, in case everybody didn't notice, that Paul is a Jew. All right, great. Uh, Here's a Jew, they say. And he is disturbing not me. 
He's disturbing our city. Well, why is he disturbing our city? Because you're making a huge disturbance. (laughs) Sounds familiar, really familiar to me. I've seen things like this. Um, And they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. doesn't say what the customs are. I'd be very curious to know what that is since the Romans had already approved the Jews and the synagogues as a legitimate religion that could could be practiced in their colonies. I'm wondering what this guy's thinking. But he's just throwing this stuff out. He's trying to make a case. And in making his case, he'll just say anything. And it's unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So, folks... Look, just a fair warning. Uh, when God really gets hold of you, and if you're available, and he's going to take you to do what he wants you to do, you could get into some trouble. And the trouble, I mean, you can get into trouble for all kinds of bad things you do. I do that all the time. I get into trouble that I create all the time. But also, let me put it this way, you also get into trouble that you didn't cause, and there's some very unjust people caused around you. It's called gospel ministry. This is the way we reach people. It is. It's the way we reach people. Let me just make an illustration. It's too obvious, isn't it? You know, with all this stuff that was in the press about Second Presbyterian this past week, you know, uh, some of the things that, that I think all of us as believers really care about in the church is that, you know, we're turning worship into entertainment. We've really stopped evangelizing effectively. Preaching is now commentary on newspapers or telling great stories instead of studying the Bible. And churches have lost their sense of discipline among themselves and taking care of their own internal business. Our divorce rates are just like everybody else's divorce rates and on and on and on it goes. Those are some of the things we care about. So obviously I care about getting that message out. So what happens in the newspaper? Well, it looks like that. Well, if you think you're going to try to keep your church as a group of elders or leaders in your church, you, you want to keep your church with healthy relationships. Look what's going to happen to you. That's the message that's gone out, isn't it? Very discouraging. Look, look what's going to happen to you if you do that. And your natural reaction would be to think, well, there you go again. That, just, that really ruins that theory that we can encourage people to be more serious in their churches about relationships. Gentlemen, let me tell you something. Uh, I've gotten no phone calls nor emails from any pastor or church leader in this city who has told me, I'm so discouraged about trying to have a healthy church. I haven't had any of those. I haven't had anybody say to me, you know, as a result of what's in the newspaper, boy, our church is never going to do that. I hadn't had one person say that to me. You know what I have had? Multiple emails and phone calls saying, would you all please help us in our church learn how to have healthy relationships together? I'm astonished. That's the way the Lord often works. The very thing that you think is the opposite of where you want to go and would do the opposite to the advance of the kingdom because of the opposition that's coming, what actually happens, I don't understand it. It, This is all beyond my reason. But somehow God is going to do something special. That's what he's doing here. So here you go, through opposition. Now, secondly, verses 22 through 24, is through suffering. Hey, look, if you get opposed, you think you're going to come out smelling like a rose? No, you're going to come out smelling like, whoops, catch yourself. You're going to suffer. You get opposition, you're going to suffer. Well, how have you suffered lately? Oh, you say, man, I tell you, I was downtown the other day evangelizing, and these people grabbed me by the coat, dragged me down to uh, the corner of uh, 3rd and and Union, and they started beating the crap out of me. It's unbelievable. Then they threw me into the prison. I don't know why. They they whipped my back and tore my clothes off and put me in the stocks in the inner prison. I've heard many stories like that in Memphis. And heard one. How you suffered lately? <laughs> was it anything like that? 
<laughs> then stop your complaining. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, this is what the majority of the church through the majority of the centuries have faced when they went about doing the Father's work. This is the majority report. Your report's the minority report. This rarely happens when you get a window of space and time where people are actually protected when they evangelize. So come on now. Let's get about our business. Let's stop complaining about this little suffering, that little suffering. Oh, they said something mean about me. Oh, they didn't invite me to the cocktail party. I guess it was because I talked about Jesus last time. You know, cut it out. Come on now. The fact that you don't have the same golf foursome is not going to be the tragic end of the world for you. Now let's move on and get involved in the kingdom of God through suffering. Thirdly, notice that the way we're going to reach the unsuspecting is through special providence. Now, Paul and Silas... This is speculative, but I have to say it. I don't think Paul and Silas were sitting there with their backs absolutely stinging and, you know, aching. And, you know, they're saying, where's the Advil when I need it? I forgot to get it out of my dop kit. You know, they were just dying. You know, they were in abject pain. I don't think Paul and Silas then said to each other, hey, while we're suffering here, let's try to evangelize these guys by making them think that we're happy. Let's just say a few prayers real loud so they'll overhear us and maybe we can testify to them that way. No, gentlemen, here's what it is. Paul and Silas were genuinely thankful to the Lord. They were genuinely trusting the Lord. You could not shut them up. They were singing in the midst of their stinging. They were praising God in the midst of having their lives broken and shattered because they trusted Him. And they loved him. And they didn't have to put on a performance for anybody. All they had to do was just be themselves. And they began to sing. And they began to pray. And the prisoners were listening to them. They didn't do it to try to impress the prisoners. But the prisoners couldn't help but listen to them. And gentlemen, whether you realize it or not, people are always watching you. And they're always listening to you. And they're always trying to see how you will react to this situation and that situation. They will notice whether you cheat on your, uh, on your uh, expense account like everybody else does or whether you don't. They'll see whether you gossip about other people or you don't. They'll see whether you tell jokes that really are defaming to God's name or you don't. They'll be able to tell whether you're kind to the lowest paid person in your business or you're not. They notice all of that because you're just being yourself. So let's be ourselves and look what happens. People can't help but notice. And suddenly then God took over with some dramatic special providences. There was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. The doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because the rule was... If you, the prison guard, lose the prisoners, we're going to lose you too. That was the threat that hung over every prison guard. You lose a prisoner, you're going to lose yourself. So life for life. And he didn't want to go the way the emperor was going to take him. He was going to go the way he wanted to take him, which was by his own sword. That would be less painful and less humiliating. And Paul basically said, stop. The first thing he does then, he's he's going to speak to him. The man had seen that God is in charge of the universe. You say, I can't convince anybody that God is in charge of the universe. As obvious as it is, 
with the trees and the grass and the birds and the bees and the human body and everything that makes it very obvious there's a God who is designed and who is superintending anything. You say, I can't convince anybody anything. Of course you can't, but God can. And He can do amazing, remarkable things when you'll just simply say one thing, Lord, I want to be faithful to you to get into the Great Commission. I want to offer my body. I want to offer my life as weak and feeble as it is. Would you just please use me? And he doesn't have to have a rocket scientist. He doesn't have to have a genius. He doesn't have to have the perfect person. He just takes you. And then he can cause earthquakes to happen around you. And then people will come to you in your stammering voice and you think you don't know much about the gospel and they'll just say, Sirs, tell me, what must I do to be saved? When you just simply offer yourself to him and let his plans take over your life, look what's happening. The first thing Paul says to him is, do not harm yourself for we are all here. It's a word of comfort. Paul says, look, don't destroy yourself. I have life for you. Don't take your life away. Sometimes the first thing you have to do with somebody, if you want to help them, when the earthquake has happened in their lives, their child has committed suicide, their wife has left them, their grandsons got run over by a car. The first thing you want to do is say, you know, there's life and there's meaning and there's love. Hang on, my brother, and you just hang on to him. Give him a word of comfort. Let him know there's something real there. There's someone alive who loves him and is not going to destroy him. A word of comfort. Then, of course, you give the word of salvation. And first of all, the word of salvation goes to the individual. And Paul says, here's what you do, my friend. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you say, can it really be that simple? Yes. You mean all this turmoil, all this opposition, all this suffering the church undergoes? Is it really for this simple message? Yes. This message is so powerful. This message is a game changer. This message transforms worlds, transforms the cosmos. Of course the demons are going to come out and oppose it in every conceivable way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Brothers, if you're... If you've got someone sitting next to you today and they're not a believer, you know what they need to be a believer is just believe. You know, if they're not saved, you know what they need to do to be saved? You just ask the Lord to save them through trusting in Jesus Christ, what he has done on the cross. That will be my payment for my sin. I can't pay for my sin. Jesus pays for my sin on the cross. I believe that. I can't live a perfect life. I squandered it from the time I was one minute old. I was born a rotten sinner. You say, you're a scoundrel. Yeah, you're right. I started out that way and hadn't changed a bit except for the conversion that I had in Christ. I was born a sinner, so I can't live a perfect life. But you know what? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for me, and I accept that as my perfection. That's my righteousness. I believe in Him, and I'm saved. It's that simple. And then he says these wonderful words, three words, in your household. Oh, my household? Yes, the same message that applies to you is the message that will save your household. So now they go to the family, verses 32 through 34. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Here, once again, you see it. You open your heart, you open your house. You spoke to me, now speak to my family. I'm saved, now I want them to be saved. Come in and give the message. And the jailer says, would you come in and evangelize my family? And we don't know who is in this family. I'm a Presbyterian who believes in baptizing infants, so I can really take off on this text if you want me to. I don't think you want me to, do you? I don't hear an amen out there. You know, the Baptists are the one who give the amen. And when you talk about baptizing infants, boy, the amens, they just, you know, they just completely cut off. Just completely cut off. 
But here, whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Roman Catholic or Episcopalian, whatever you are, let me tell you, God loves your household too. And He wants you to minister to them. And if you don't think you can, you better get somebody in there who can. And the jailer says, I don't know a whole lot. I just know I'm saved. But I know somebody who knows more than I do and I want to come to my house. And gentlemen, if you're not getting your kids in church, I'm talking about a church that believes the gospel. You're making a huge mistake. Your house needs the gospel, the simple gospel that I just gave you. And they need to hear it this week and next week and the week after that and the week after that until they lay their head down six feet under the ground. And you be sure you're getting them that. That's your job. That was the jailer's job. He knew it from the very beginning. He got baptized and he said, now my house. I want my house baptized. I want the mark of Jesus Christ over this entire household. And that became his first mission. It was his first concern. Make it your concern. Okay, let's go on. Verse 35 through 40. Here we learn that the Lord uses us to protect the church. So we've seen, first of all, that the Lord leads us to the lost and then the Lord uses us to save the lost. Well, the Lord also uses us to protect the church. Now, in verses 35 through 39, we have a very interesting thing here. They find out, I don't know why they didn't find out before. Maybe it was because of all the noise. Paul was trying to say, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. But for some reason, they didn't hear him or he didn't say, I don't know what went on. Maybe he was in shock, Paul was. But now he lets out the word. Well, this is interesting treatment of someone who's a Roman citizen. They went, what'd you say? You treat a Roman citizen like that, and then you're going to get treated the same way. You whip the back of a Roman citizen, your back's going to get whipped. You do not touch a Roman citizen. And uh, when you have a world power like that, that's what they say to the rest of the world. You can haul them before our courts. You can make any complaints you want to, but you do not lay hands on one of our citizens. And that's what the Romans said. Paul made it clear he was a Roman citizen. They all were terrified because now they're going to get whipped. So the magistrates realize we be in deep weeds. So they send the police, their underlings, to go tell Paul, oh, you can go free. We're very, you know, whatever, it's fine, no problem. Now, Paul could have taken his freedom, but here he had a larger concern. They have just publicly whipped a leader in the church. What hope is there now for Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer? Paul says, no, you publicly shamed the Christian gospel. Now, would you please publicly restore our rights? Paul wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't being a petulant little three-year-old. No, I want them to come apologize. No, Paul says, I want you to apologize so that everybody knows it. And everybody here in Philippi knows you're not supposed to lay hands on Roman citizens, even if they're Christians. Paul was laying the ground for the peace of the church. So he had the church in view. And, And gentlemen, when you're under opposition, what you've got to think about is what is in the interest of the kingdom of God. That's all we care about. What's in the interest of the kingdom of God? And that's how you manage everything that you do. What's in the interest of the church, wherever you go? Lastly, verse 40, notice that he encouraged the church's members. He goes back to visit Lydia. He protected Lydia with the Roman authorities. Now he goes back to encourage her and strengthen her and to say to these Philippians, now don't you all be afraid. I think the magistrates have learned a lesson. Don't be afraid. I believe you all are going to be all right. But if not, let me tell you something. I was in that prison and Silas and I rejoiced before the Lord and we sang our hymns and we prayed and we experienced His presence. I want to tell you something. You will too. You can just imagine the sermon He gave to those, those few little Philippian believers. Now, 
Finally, this church became Paul's favorite church. I think it's pretty obvious. He always brags about the Macedonians. God took him where he wasn't planning to go, and God planted a church that was his primary financial and prayer supporter for the rest of his life. And when Paul was in prison in Rome, who came to see him? Epaphroditus from Philippi, walking 600 miles on foot to take supplies to Paul while he was in prison. God will take you where you maybe don't think you need to go. He'll do the work that you didn't think you could ever do. And He'll lead people to Christ and they'll become your best friends. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great Gospel and for the great mission upon which You've placed us. Help us to be faithful, always faithful in our day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Bless you.